Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 23rd of June for the listening week that begins the 24th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I'll be opening with a few articles related to Juneteenth, which has just passed. First, how others, or how people, celebrated. From Argus leader, Sioux Falls, 7,000 people attended the 2023 Juneteenth celebration in Sioux Falls, the largest turnout yet. This was posted June 22nd and written by Oksana Kotkina for the Sioux Falls Argus leader. Despite Saturday cloudy skies, Sioux Falls successfully celebrated its first Juneteenth as both an official paid state holiday and federal, after the recognition was made official by the state legislature last year. The event started with Freedom Walk from the Ark of Dreams, Sioux Falls Mayor Paul Tinhaken's proclamation, and the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, performed by the ACE Academy Children. Juneteenth commemorates the end of slavery in the U.S. when three months after the Civil War ended and two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, word of freedom was spread to enslaved black people in Texas. Tenhaken said during his proclamation, Juneteenth is now recognized as a national holiday, and the city of Sioux Falls is proud to acknowledge the celebration of freedom. He said the event was important for the city because it shows the black community matters here. When he was invited to the Juneteenth celebration for the first time, Tenhaken had no idea what Juneteenth was, he said, but he went because that is what the mayors do, especially when they are only starting their position. Since then, he said, he's been part of six Juneteenth celebrations, and the event has grown substantially, offering a chance for everyone, including the government leaders, to recognize and to celebrate the diversity of Sioux Falls. Next, from Blavity, written by Aria Bell, posted June 23rd, a black news reporter celebrated Juneteenth by wearing locks for the first time on air. What better way to celebrate Juneteenth than by rocking your natural hair for the first time on TV? That's precisely what news reporter Akila Davis did during a segment highlighting her hair journey. Davis, who is 34 years old, is a race and culture reporter at WTVD the ABC 11 affiliate station serving the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area in North Carolina and its surrounding areas. Since Juneteenth is a federal holiday that celebrates the day enslaved black Americans in Texas were told they were free, Davis decided to share her experience embracing her natural texture of hair with viewers. For this personal story, she wanted to try something different with her hair, so she wore the locks she'd been growing out since December 2021, according to People. When the package aired, it featured commentary from Davis's parents, Terry and Deborah, 
Duke University African-American Studies professor Dr. Jasmine Cobb, and Davis herself, of course. Although not wearing her own hair made it easier to switch hairstyles, and she looked great on the outside, Davis shared that she had to do some internal work. From ponytails to beads, my tight curls were difficult for mom to manage, she said. Unknowingly, I internalized this idea that straight hair was good hair, and afro hair, like mine, was not. Marketing campaigns on TV and in magazines didn't help. This resulted in Davis only wearing wigs and weaves whenever she was on the air. The message really stayed with, I would say, a generation of black women, in particular, who really had to work to overcome the idea that something about their hair was just inherently inadequate, said Cobb in the segment. Ultimately, Davis said she hopes that her decision will inspire others. I chose Juneteenth to share this journey to hair freedom with all of you because it's Liberation Day for me, she said. So... Moving forward, this is how you'll see me on TV, and I'm hoping to inspire women and little girls struggling to embrace their roots. I see you, sis, and I'm with you. She's doing just that, as black women flooded her comments section on Instagram and thanked her for sharing her story. Beautiful, sis, proud of you. I felt the same way, and that's why I wore my natural hair my first day on the bench in November 2017. My hope was to inspire other black women and attorneys that our hair is beautiful and professional, one woman wrote. Awesome, congratulations. You look amazing. We applaud you, queen, a third person agreed. Oh, here's the second comment. Let them beautiful locks flow. We're proud of you, sis. Next, an opinion piece from the Washington Post, which went up on June 18th, written by Theodore R. Johnson. Juneteenth is a holiday for all Americans. It's our second Independence Day. There are little joys to be found in overheard conversations like this recent gem on an Acela train. A couple of young professional dude bros sat behind me and were discussing why they couldn't reschedule something for the 19th of June. Because it's Juneteenth. We get it off this year, one said. And after a beat or two too long, the other replied, Oh yeah? What's it for anyways? Like, I know for black people, but... The first gave a pitying chuckle and returned with, It's when America freed the slaves, followed by an incredulous, Come on, man. I mean, well, yes, Juneteenth commemorates the day when, more than two months after Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses S. Grant, and more than two years after Abraham Lincoln's proclamation, a Union army finally reached South Texas with news of emancipation but I was far less interested in historical accuracy than I was in the fact that these two guys were having a casual Juneteenth civics conversation. Five years ago, that exchange would have been unimaginable. Most Americans had little clue what Juneteenth was until it became a federal holiday in 2021. 
The newness of the holiday for much of the country means that there's no shared set of traditions associated with it yet. Without ritual and mythology, things do not stick to the culture. We need to decide what the holiday will mean for us and for posterity. This doesn't happen without thought and effort. Labor Day, for example, has become an end-of-summer milestone rather than an homage to the American worker. So, I cringed to see, pardon me, to see social media last year fill with pictures of Juneteenth-themed party supplies and T-shirts in red, black, green, and gold. These were clearly the product of a marketing shortcut. Nothing says black people like kente cloth or the pan-African red, black, and green. But in America, to mark something as explicitly black is to understand that some will interpret that as exclusively black. So robing Juneteenth in those colors and patterns will naturally cause many to think that the holiday is, quote, for black people, rather than an observation of a vital story for all Americans. Given this marketing, it wouldn't have surprised me to hear from my fellow train passengers that, quote, Juneteenth is kind of like a summer Kwanzaa. A mishmash of cultural understanding, perhaps, but serviceable. Don't get me wrong, an occasion to mark the mythical black American cookout, parentheses, with its specific instructions of who can bring what and its notoriously stingy invitation list, is always welcome. But Juneteenth must be a national and inclusive holiday with a narrative to match. It symbolizes how the emancipation of black people initiated a new beginning for a nation that had fallen short of its founding ideals. It recalls the important truth that emancipation was not a gift. It was hard won by perhaps the greatest multiracial coalition the nation has ever assembled, with black Americans actively engaged in the taking. The promise of America is clearest in this resulting Reconstruction Amendments. Pardon me, that reads, in the resulting Reconstruction Amendments. Juneteenth represents the ushering in of this new nation and a glimpse of its potential. For Independence Day to have any meaning that connects to the founding ideals, Juneteenth must exist. Without a shared celebration of June 19th, there is no reason for fireworks on July 4th. It's for this reason that the initiating legislation was titled the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. At its core, the holiday observes the nation's rebirth, its second founding. The colors on the Juneteenth flag are red, white, and blue. They must be. It is an American holiday, not a pan-African one. When Lincoln and various organizations proposed exporting enslaved black Americans to freedom on distant shores, black folks almost universally refused. Their goal was not just freedom, but freedom here, in the country they helped shape and build. Imagine the national pride required to fight so hard and for so long to improve a place and become fully part of it. 
Our national story urges every American to remember both a past in which our forebears were excluded and their battle for inclusion. This is the common thread in the story of every American, no matter their race, ethnicity, or nation of origin. Juneteenth has the potential to represent that shared narrative better than any other civic observance. It comes just a few weeks after Memorial Day and a couple of weeks before Independence Day. After a solemn remembrance of those who have given their lives in service to the country, but before celebrating another year of existence, Juneteenth represents the pride and resolve necessary to keep the nation moving forward. It admonishes us not to squander the sacrifices of previous generations. In this moment of divisive indictments and a looming presidential election, it is a hopeful project to shape the holiday's meaning and traditions. For now, I'm content to know that more of us are learning of an official holiday to mark the end of slavery in the United States. This is a big deal and something we should all be proud of. Before the summer Kwanzaa commercialization, pardon me, before the summer Kwanzaa commercialization takes permanent control, however, there is still a chance to replace it with an annual reaffirmation of a commitment to build an inclusive democracy. We can still dream. And our final one for this week on this topic. This comes from the Washington Post. It was put up on June 19th, written by Gillian Brockle. And I will edit this for length. On Juneteenth, three stirring stories of how enslaved people gained their freedom. There was no one moment when freedom came to the enslaved in the United States. When President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the clouds did not part, the sun did not shine beams of freedom, and the shackles of slavery, locked for nearly 250 years, did not magically fall away. And it doesn't diminish Lincoln to acknowledge that. It's a pretty entrenched story in our national memory that Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and on January 1, 1863, Enslaved people were free, says historian Amy Murrell Taylor, who went on, We need to puncture a big hole in this national mythology without diminishing Lincoln. The truth is much more complicated. Millions of Americans gained freedom from 1861 to 1865 in a slow-moving wave. That includes the Emancipation Proclamation, Juneteenth, and the passage of the 13th Amendment. There are millions of stories to tell. Many ran across Union lines and emancipated themselves, flooding into hastily constructed contraband camps. Taylor calls them refugee camps. Some brought family members and wagon loads of belongings. Others were forced to choose between freedom and their children. For some, the Union line and its liberation came to them. Some formerly enslaved people encountered sympathetic white soldiers and missionaries who helped them. Others were treated like vagrants or were handed over to be re-enslaved. Some gained freedom by enlisting in the Union army and fighting the people who had enslaved them. 
Some states read the writing on the wall and abolished slavery by state action during the war. Others dug in their heels and wouldn't let go until the 13th Amendment forced them, pardon me, forced them to, months after the war was over. For many people, the process went on for years, Taylor told the Washington Post. I think we miss the actions of enslaved people how pivotal they were in pushing emancipation forward when we focus just on one moment. Without them, she said, the Civil War might have ended without abolition. In Taylor's 2018 book titled Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps, she used a treasure trove of military records to reconstruct this period from the perspectives of individual people who forged new lives in the refugee camps that dominated the landscape but were forgotten in historical reports. Edward and Emma Whitehurst Edward Whitehurst had been, quote, self-hired for some time, meaning his enslaver let him lease himself to others, an arrangement that left Whitehurst with a portion of the rental fee. That wasn't out of the goodness of his enslaver's heart. That portion was supposed to cover his room and board in Newport News, Virginia. Whitehurst carefully saved what he could for years, hoping one day to buy his and his wife Emma's freedom. He kept the money hidden in a trunk, on the nearby plantation where she was enslaved. At age 31, he had saved about $500, worth about 16000 today. It wasn't enough to buy their freedom yet, but he was well on his way. Then the Civil War broke out. Their enslaver enlisted in the Confederate Army and left. And though Virginia seceded from the Union, a U.S. military installation in the southeastern corner of the Commonwealth never fell to Confederate forces, and it was only seven miles from them. Within days, enslaved people began to arrive at the installation seeking freedom. Soon, the man in charge, Brigadier General Benjamin Butler, made an unprecedented order. Since Virginians claimed to be citizens of another country, Americans were under no obligation to abide by the Fugitive Slave Act and return runaways. In fact, they were contraband of war, he said, and would be given protection and, where possible, jobs to help the Union effort. Thus, Fort Monroe, the place where black people were first enslaved in the English-speaking world, became the place where hundreds ran to their freedom 250 years later, including the Whitehursts. Whitehurst later said in a sworn statement, I was a slave at the beginning of the war, but I was free to all intents and purposes on the 27th day of May, 1861. Plus, he had $500. As soon as they could, the Whitehursts remarried, likely the first time in their lives they were legally recognized as people and not property. Edward made at least two risky trips to the old plantation to retrieve his savings and to harvest the crops for their own use. As things began to stabilize in the area, they set up a general store right across a creek from the fort, supplying soldiers and other formerly enslaved people with fresh meat and vegetables, eggs, ginger cakes, and even lumber. 
It was so successful they were able to hire some of their friends. But while they no longer had enslavers, they were still vulnerable to the capricious whims of union office pardon me, that's union officials. Business suffered when many of their black customers didn't get the pay they were promised from the U.S. Army. One official wanted the store shut down, and when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, it specifically exempted Union-controlled parts of the Confederacy, leaving them unsure if they would stay free or be returned to slavery. Worse, in August of 1862, as General George McClellan's army retreated from the failed Peninsula Campaign, the, pardon me, the dejected soldiers ransacked the store. They loaded the entire contents of its shelves into their wagons and took off, leaving the Whitehurst penniless. This is the reason Taylor was able to get such a detailed account of the Whitehurst's early days of freedom— in 1877, Edward Whitehurst petitioned the government to compensate him for the loss of his goods. By then, he and his wife had saved up another nest egg and farmed their own land. But 15 years later, he still remembered exactly what had been taken. And he listed it. 40 pounds of butter, six hogs, two bushels of ginger cakes, and so on. He asked for $722.00. He received 115. Eliza Bogan The first time Eliza Bogan crossed over to the Union side, she wasn't seeking freedom. She was trying to get her husband, Silas Small, to come back to the cotton farm in Phillips County, Arkansas, where he had been enslaved. In the fall of 1862, Union troops got hold of nearby Helena, Arkansas, on the Mississippi River. The commander hired escaping enslaved men who showed up to build a fort, promising them freedom. Small was among those men, but then the fort got a new commander who wasn't interested in paying or feeding them and didn't mind returning escapees to their enslavers. Bogan got word that her husband was severely ill, so she brought him back to the plantation where she lived and nursed him back to health. January 1, 1863, the day Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, came and went without notice. By April, Lincoln sent a general to tour the Mississippi Valley to make it clear to the officials and soldiers in the region that they should be enforcing his proclamation it was on this tour that the first black soldiers were recruited for the Union Army. Small was one of them, and this time Bogan pardon me, and this time Bogan followed him over the Union lines, probably leaving her seven children within grasp of their cruel enslaver. Her husband was soon captured by Confederates and spent a short time re-enslaved before escaping again. This time, Bogan wouldn't let him out of her sight. She joined the regiment as a laundress, earning a wage and rations from the army. After a campaign through Mississippi, Small came down with the measles. She tried again to nurse him back to health, this time unsuccessfully. Although her husband was gone, Bogan stayed with the regiment for the rest of the war. Confederates so often raided the contraband camps that she was probably safer with the soldiers, 
Taylor noted. Eventually they were sent to Texas where they helped enforce emancipation, contributing to the celebration that became known as Juneteenth. Bogan married again to a man in her regiment, and they returned to Arkansas in January 1866, where they became sharecroppers. She was still alive in 1920, when 25 miles away, more than 200 black people were lynched in the Elaine Massacre. Gabriel Burdett From a young age, Gabriel Burdett's mother told him she had had a vision that sometime in his life he would be freed. And not just him. All enslaved people, she told him. It was a bold prediction, given slavery's two-century history at that point. By the 1850s, as he entered his twenties, he was a Baptist minister, probably preaching in secret meetings to other enslaved people in Garrard County, Kentucky. Eventually, a white Baptist church gave him permission to preach to his congregation in their building once a month. This may have looked like a kind gesture, but it also placed him under closer supervision. White observers could make sure he wasn't straying from their pro-slavery version of Christianity, where enslavement was sanctioned by God and submission to a master would bring contentment. By June 1862, Burdett was in trouble with white church officials for something he had said during a sermon. It is unclear what that was. Kentucky stayed pro-slavery and pro-union during the Civil War, the latter somewhat tenuously, because of that the Union Army there was not the liberating force it often was in the Confederate States. The Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to Kentucky, and in the summer of 1863 the U.S. Army forced Burdett into a wagon and carried him off to work as a slave for the Union. His wife and kids stayed behind. At Camp Nelson, Burdett suddenly had a much bigger congregation and little supervision, and for the first time he encountered white Christian missionaries who were anti-slavery. Then, in the spring of 1864, the army began enlisting enslaved men in Kentucky, promising freedom if they joined. Burdett and 14,000 of his brethren signed up. He never saw combat, he worked with the missionaries to set up schools for the black regiments at Camp Nelson, and after the war ended, he too was sent to Texas. By 1866, he was reunited with his wife and children, and they moved to Kansas to start a new life. They were finally free. And for those interested in the book these were taken from, it is In Battled Freedom, colon, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. By historian Amy Morell Taylor. Well, I'd like to apologize for misspeaking earlier. That was not the last article for this week on the topic of Juneteenth. This one looks interesting. In the mountains of northern Mexico... Descendants of formerly enslaved people have celebrated Juneteenth, or Dia de los Negros, for over a century. This was written by Isaiah Reynolds, posted June 19th. 
for Insider. And they have some bullet points. Black Seminole tribal members of El Nacimiento de los Negros have celebrated their version of Juneteenth since the 1870s. When Mexico outlawed slavery decades before the United States, thousands of black Texans found a new route to freedom. Their descendants meet in Coahuila, Mexico every year for Juneteenth celebrations. Just over 100 miles from the Texas-Mexico border, a small mountain town in Coahuila, Mexico, is preparing for their annual Juneteenth celebrations. El Nacimiento de los Negros, translates to Birth of the Blacks, is home to a community of Afro-Indigenous families that trace their roots back to the United States. Known as Moscogos, the group are descendants of black Seminoles who found a home in Mexico after fleeing, sla pardon me, after fleeing slavery and the threat of slave catchers in the U.S. Black Seminoles were formerly enslaved people who escaped the plantations they worked on and aligned themselves with the indigenous Seminoles of Florida. They joined forces with the indigenous tribes to fight the U.S. in the Seminole Wars. In the 1800s, many black Seminoles were forced to relocate from places like Georgia and Florida to areas designated Indian Territory in Oklahoma. During that time, black Seminole chief John Horse, who had both indigenous and black ancestry, led a group of people to Mexico where slavery had already been outlawed. The group settled in El Nacimiento in 1852. The Southern Underground Railroad When the General Congress of the United Mexican States completely outlawed slavery in 1837, Enslaved people in Texas had a viable route to, free, pardon me, to freedom by going southward. Notably, in the 1936 to 1938 Federal Slave Narrative Project, emancipated freeman and San Antonio-born Felix Hayward remarked, There wasn't no reason to run up north. All we had to do was to walk, but walk south, and we'd be free as soon as we crossed the Rio Grande. By 1849, African Americans began to make the journey into Mexico. Experts estimate that up to 10,000 people crossed the border to Mexico to secure their freedom and escape slavery, creating what is known as the Southern Underground Railroad. Contrary to the Union's agreement to return runaway slaves under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, Mexican law provided freedom for escaped slaves once they touched Mexican soil. Many of those escaped enslaved people alongside indigenous groups of Mexico helped defend the northern Mexican border in exchange for acres of land in Coahuila. Celebrating Juneteenth in Mexico Juneteenth marks the official end of slavery on June 19, 1865, when 250,000 black people in Galveston, Texas, were informed of their freedom by executive decree. Historians estimate that as some black Seminoles traveled back and forth from El Nacimiento to Brackettville, Texas, Juneteenth celebrations spread to Mexico as early as the 1870s. For more than 100 years, Moscogos in El Nacimiento 
el nacimiento, have celebrated what they call Dia de los Negros, or Day of the Blacks. On June 19th, many black Seminole descendants still embark on the pilgrimage from parts of Texas to El Nacimiento to celebrate the day. Traditional cuisine includes a sweet potato bread called tetapun and slow-cooked asado pork. The dishes combine indigenous, black, and Mexican cultural inspirations. After generations in northern Mexico, many members of the Black Seminoles in El Nacimiento strictly speak Spanish. However, the hymns passed down from African-American descendants are still sung in English on Dia de los Negros, including Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and This Little Light of Mine. As more black Seminole descendants are leaving El Nacimiento to find work in Texas or other parts of Mexico, many Moscogos are worried their culture is waning. To prioritize preservation, members have established the Museo Comunitario Tribu Negros Moscogos for local art, a hotel, a restaurant, and secured federal funding for community gardens. In 2017, the governor of Coahuila declared the Moscogo tribe as indigenous people of the northern Mexican state. As Juneteenth was officially recognized as a U.S. federal holiday in 2021, tribal members are planning to promote cultural tourism as a source of support and revitalization for the enduring town and prevailing traditions of El Nacimiento de los Negros. And now moving to some current events, reading from theroot.com. One of the Central Park Five is running to represent Harlem. This is written by Jessica Washington and posted on the 21st. In New York, Yusuf Salam one of the wrongly convicted Central Park Five members is running for city council. From an early age, Youssef Salam has had a front-row seat to the worst aspects of New York City and its criminal justice system. At just 15 years old, Salam was convicted of a crime he didn't commit, forcing him to spend nearly seven of his most formative years behind bars before he was exonerated. Now most of us know the name Yusuf Salam, or at least we know of the Central Park Five, the group of five black and brown boys wrongly convicted of an horrific rape and assault in Central Park. Today Salam is no longer a scared teenager, pushed around by law enforcement, the media, and Donald Trump. At 49 years old, Salam says he's ready to change things from the inside. Salam is one of three candidates vying to represent a coveted Harlem district on the New York City Council. His case is simple. Who better to address a broken system than someone who has experienced its wrath the most? Those who are close to the pain need to have a seat at the table, said Salam at an event in the spring. Early voting is already underway in the Democratic June 27th primary race. And since Harlem isn't exactly sending a ton of Republicans to the city council, this election is the one to watch. 
Salam is facing off against two seasoned politicians, New York Assembly members Al Taylor and former Harlem City Council member Ines Dickens. His opponents have attacked him for his lack of experience and the fact that he left New York in the wake of his exoneration. No one should go through what my opponent went through, especially as a child. Years later, after he returns to New York, Harlem is in crisis. We don't have time for a freshman to learn the job, learn the issues, and relearn the community he left behind for Stockbridge, Georgia, Dickens told the Associated Press. Salam has pushed back against this line of attack, arguing that while he may not have political experience, he has a history of fighting against injustice and winning. I have no track record in politics, said Salam, according to the AP. But I have a great track record in the 34 years of the Central Park jogger case in fighting for freedom, justice, and equality. Although the issues with the criminal justice system are obviously a large part of Salam's platform, issues of poverty and environmental justice are also top of mind for his campaign. At an event earlier this year, Salam spoke about why it is important for him to run for office. He said, what I'm doing here is not about the moment. It's a, not about the title of being called a city council person. This is about the movement to resuscitate the very soul that is dormant in Harlem. Next one was posted on the 20th, written by Jessica Washington. Bishop William Barber II retires from pastoring. What's next? North Carolina civil rights leader Bishop William Barber delivered his last sermon as pastor after 30 years at Greenleaf Christian Church. This, pardon me. Renowned civil rights leader Bishop William, Ju pardon me again. I'll start over. Renowned civil rights leader Bishop William J. Barber II delivered his last sermon as pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church on Sunday. Barbara has preached at the Goldsboro, North Carolina Church for the last 30 years. As he left his decades-long position, Barbara handed over the reins of the church to the next generation. I give you now the torch, the passing of the torch, the flame of the spirit that has kept me and all others before me all the way from Peter on forward, he said to the woman succeeding him, Reverend G. Cheryl Hennett Uzel. He went on, and that same pastoral spirit and fire, because you gotta have fire to be a pastor. Barber also spoke openly about the impact of his arthritis during the sermon, praising God for allowing him to keep pushing forward. But just because Barber is passing the pastoral torch doesn't mean he's stepping away from leadership. Barber, who is well known for his leadership of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, and his Moral Monday protests, spoke to The Root about his next chapter late last year. Barber announced that he was heading up the, Dale, pardon me, the Yale Divinity School's new Center for Theology and Public Policy. I'm excited to move from pastoring, that is 35 years of pastoral ministry with the congregation, to, in a sense, pastoring the movement with this center, he told The Root in December. The goal of the center is to train the next generation of movement leaders 
in the practice of moral leadership. We're going to share what I've learned to lead research on the deep connection between theology, deepest moral values, constitutional values, and just policies in the present, said Barber. The Divinity School launched in April, and Barber wasn't the only prominent civil rights and theological leader attached to the school. As we discussed with Barber in December, Valerie Eguavon, Rose Pellis, and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove also joined the center. As Barber stepped into his new role at Yale and away from the church, he was celebrated by the political allies he has made along the way, including President Joe Biden. Thank you for showing all of us how to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. I'll never forget your homily at my inaugural prayer service when you called on us to be repairers of the breach and heal the soul of the nation, said the President in a video message to Barber. Speaking with The Root last year, Barber expressed his enthusiasm for his new position shaping the next generation of movement leaders. He told The Root, This work is hard, but it's worth it. I would not want to leave this life and not try in some way to see what we've learned, what we know, what we are yet to know, into the veins of this society and into the hearts and minds of generations of leaders that are already here, but also will be here long after many of us. Next article about some June Supreme Court action. Supreme Court gives the Voting Rights Act a tenuous new lease on life. This comes from the New York Times, written by Michael Wines, posted June 8th. The main remaining power of the landmark 1965 law over racial bias and political map-making gets an unexpected buttressing from a court that had been weakening the law for years. The Supreme Court's surprising decision on Thursday to effectively reaffirm the remaining powers of the 1965 Voting Rights Act has halted, at least for the foreseeable future, the slide toward irrelevance of a landmark civil rights law that reshaped American politics. In 2013, Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr. wrote an opinion that effectively gutted the heart of the Act, a provision that gave the Justice Department a veto over changes in election procedures in states with histories of racial bias in elections. Two years ago, an opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito greatly weakened the law's authority over polling rules that reduced the clout of minority voters. Supporters of the act expected the court to take an axe to the law's chief remaining authority over political maps. In the latest case, Allen v. Milligan, a suit charging that Alabama had drawn its seven congressional districts to illegally limit black voters' influence to a single House seat. Instead, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the majority in a 5-4 to four ruling, reaffirmed the law's authority over racially biased maps and the arcane structure of legal precedents and court tests that underpin it. Chief Justice Roberts had a second conservative justice, Brett Kavanaugh, indicated that, oh, pardon me, Chief Justice Roberts and a second conservative justice, Brett Kavanaugh, 
indicated that though they joined the majority in this case, they still harbored reservations about the law, and in a court that has been willing to toss out precedents, a one-vote majority may be a slim read. Even so, voting rights advocates said the court's unexpected turn, and particularly the support from Chief Justice Roberts, a longtime skeptic of the Voting Rights Act, was heartening. The act, quote, is hanging by a thread, and that thread's name is probably John Roberts, said Brian L. Sells, a Georgia lawyer who was special litigator of voting rights cases in the Justice Department between the years 2010 and 2015. Bernard Groffman, an election law scholar at the University of California, Irvine, called Thursday's ruling an incredibly strong opinion, far stronger than anyone, certainly I, would have anticipated coming out of this court. Professor Groffman, whose expert testimony was pivotal in defining the scope of the law in a 1986 Supreme Court case, Thornburg v. Gingles, said the majority opinion addressed, quote, each of the main arguments of those who would like to end the Voting Rights Act and replace it with race-blind districting, and those arguments are completely rejected. The case involves a clause in the Act known as Section 2 that outlaws any election or voting practice that denies minority voters an equal voice, pardon me, an equal voice at the polls Section 2 has been used mostly to attack political maps that are drawn, intentionally or not, in ways that dilute the power of minority group voters. Over the years, court decisions have set out a dense set of standards for defining such maps and have said that while any maps that are drawn can pardon me, while any maps that are drawn to replace them can take race into account, they must be based primarily on other long-standing district drawing goals, like keeping together communities with common interests. Alabama Republicans mounted a wide-ranging defense against the lawsuit's claims that their district maps were biased, but their most notable argument rested on a premise that has become a conservative article of faith, that racial discrimination should be addressed with race-blind solutions. The Alabama legislators had argued that the way to judge any bias in their maps was not by using the established standards, but by comparing them with sheaves of computer-generated hypothetical maps that were drawn without regard to any race. By that standard, they said, their challenged map met benchmarks for fairness. Chief Justice Roberts rejected that argument as compelling neither in theory nor practice, a response that conservative critics sharply questioned on Thursday the National Republican Redistricting Trust, an arm of the National Republican Party, said it maintains an indecipherable status quo. Edward Whelan, a former law clerk of Justice Antonin, Antonin, pardon me, Antonin Scalia, who is now a political commentator, noted in an online post that Chief Justice Roberts himself had once said in a 2007 ruling that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. 
The court's ruling on Thursday has national political implications in Alabama and three other states, where Democrats would be likely to capture additional congressional seats if lawsuits over those states' maps are decided their way. The ruling paves the way for a federal trial in the Alabama case, where a lower court has already said that advocates calling for a second majority black congressional district in the state are likely to win. The decision also seems certain to clear away barriers to a trial in a similar case in Louisiana, where civil rights groups argue that the Republican-controlled state legislature also deprived black voters of a chance to influence elections in a second House district. The Supreme Court had delayed trials in both cases until it ruled on the merits of a Republican challenge in the Alabama case, the issue that was settled on Thursday. The ruling also seems likely to influence a trial over racial bias in the Georgia congressional map, where plaintiffs also claim the state legislature's map diluted black voting influence in House elections. Professor Groffman said the new ruling could also have repercussions in a South Carolina lawsuit, now before the Supreme Court, contending that the legislature there had gerrymandered House districts to dilute black voters' influence in violation of the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Beyond any transient partisan considerations, though, the ruling on Thursday is notable for preserving, at least for the moment, what remains of the Voting Rights Act. When it was enacted in 1965, the 11 former Confederate states had a total of three black state legislators. Today there are roughly 300. Back then, only 475 black Americans held elective office anywhere in the nation. Today there are more than 640 black mayors alone, representing 48 million citizens. In 1965, only 6.7% of black Mississippians were registered to vote. Three years later, the figure had risen to nearly 60%. Black voter turnout in a handful of states, Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana among them, exceeded the turnout by white voters last November. The act's reach grew to cover bias against Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and other groups, making a law initially aimed at racism in the Deep South equally important in addressing voting rights in Alaska, Utah, Illinois, and elsewhere. The law's critics have argued that its very success shows that it has accomplished its purpose and is no longer needed, an argument that Chief Justice Roberts alluded to in his 2013 ruling. Back then, he wrote, Times have changed. Experts say there is no denying that progress has been made. Race has not gone away, that's for certain, said M.V. Hood, a scholar of Southern politics at the University of Georgia, who went on, but white conservatives are happier to vote for minority candidates that are Republican than for white candidates that are Democrats. I don't think that would have happened 30 years ago. Still, voting rights advocates say times have not changed nearly enough to merit dismantling the act. Political scholars say voting is more polarized along racial lines today than at any time since the Voting Rights Act was passed. The divide widened in 2008 
with the election of the nation's first black president, and it widened again after Donald J. Trump was elected in 2016, and the Republican Party lurched further to the right. You've taken medicine, I've taken medicine, said Armand Durfner, a constitutional law expert at Charleston School of Law, who argued some of the earliest Voting Rights Act cases before the Supreme Court. He went on, The doctor says, Finish this whole bottle of pills, even if you feel better halfway through, right? You don't want to just be better. You want to be cured. Next from the New York Times, Prestigious Rose Breeder names its new bloom for a black gardener. For more than 60 years, David Austin Roses has named new varieties after historical British figures, all of them white. The Danahue, which honors Danny Clark, changed that. This article is written by Remy Tuman. It was published on June 6th, pardon me, that's June 17th. For more than 60 years, David Austin Roses has bred the world's most prestigious blooms. They are the Air Jordans, the Birkin Bags, the Steinway Pianos of Roses, and have become what we know, smell, and delight in as the modern English rose. And every year for more than 60 years, David Austin Roses has named one or two new varieties after historical British figures, including Queen Elizabeth II, Emily Bronte, Roald Dahl, and Charles Darwin. Until this year, those people have all been white. Take a deep whiff of the Danahue. That's spelled D-A-N-N-A-H-U-E. At the Chelsea Flower Show in London last month, David Austin Roses introduced the Danahue, an apricot-colored English shrub rose named after Danny Clark, a gardener known to his social media followers and to television viewers in Britain as the Black Gardener. The shrub is available only in Britain, but now will be sold to American gardeners next year. Mr. Clark, whose full given name is Danahue, went from relative obscurity to a BBC gardening star on The Instant Gardener nearly a decade ago, and has since become a leading voice for expanding accessibility to green spaces. In addition to running a private garden design company, Mr. Clark is a designer for Grow to Know, which teaches young people in disadvantaged communities how to garden. Everybody can garden, Mr. Clark said in an interview from his garden in Bromley, a borough in southeastern London. He went on, it's something that's intrinsic. Now, Mr. Clark hopes that the rose named in his honor will help give other gardeners of color the confidence to connect to nature in a setting that they may have otherwise felt was off-limits to them. If they see me with an accolade like this, and they see me getting my hands in the soil and maybe visiting fabulous gardens and being part of the countryside, said Mr. Clark, they think, if he can do it, why can't I do it? The Danahue has been in development for 12 years, the average length of breeding for David Austin roses. David Austin released his first rose, Constance Spry, named for a British writer and society floral designer, in 1961. He went on to become one of the world's leading rose breeders, developing more than 200 varieties of his English roses over the course of his lifetime. 
His son, David Austin, Jr., now runs David Austin Roses. Mr. Clark was selected to have a rose variety named in his honor after David Austin, Jr. saw Mr. Clark's display at the Chelsea Flower Show in 2022. With Tatian Hayden Smith, the founder of Grow to Know, Mr. Clark has designed a garden inspired by global deforestation and social injustice. The two took home the silver medal. What David Austin has done beautifully is take that old-fashioned flower form and the fragrance and turned it into a modern, repeat-blooming shrub, said Peter Kukielski, a rosarian and a former curator at the New York Botanical Garden. Who doesn't want that? he added. The Danahue is a versatile rose that can grow in the sun or the shade, in containers or on a balcony, or along hedges in a vast green space, and in multiple soil types. It's also great for pollinators. In essence, it's sending the message, we need to make sure that gardening is accessible and inclusive, and to do that, we need to produce roses that can thrive in any space, and that anybody can grow. And then there's its fragrance, Mr. Clark said. I pick up a bit of licorice in the scent, but it's very subtle, and not in your face. You're forced to get close to it to have a smell. Mr. Clark was born in Oxford to Jamaican immigrants and had an itinerant childhood. Whenever his family moved to a new home, his father would send Mr. Clark out to the garden as a way of acclimating him to his new surroundings. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you by Warner Brands. Enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.